So you have different processes of cooking, which do different things to the formula, changes the synergy of the formula. For example, at any kind of xie xintang, so gansao, shengjiang, or bangsha xie xintang, when you cook that formula, you cook it from roughly 2.4 mils down to 1,200. Then you remove the herbs, and then you take the liquid, and you boil the liquid down to 600, 6 sheng down to 3 sheng. In that process, you're harmonizing the flavors. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that connects the voices of our acupuncture and East Asian medicine community to itself. I'm a little surprised at the number of students that listen to the podcast. I've gotten quite a few emails over the past six months or so. I've had students express appreciation for the podcast as it gives some perspectives beyond what's being taught in schools. And sometimes there's some griping about air quotes here, just getting TCM, and that they're not learning aspects of the medicine that are not on the national exam. I think these students have put their fingers on a vital pulse here, but in blaming the schools, I think they're missing the mark of diagnosing the problem. Schools aren't the problem. The world we live in that asks for standardization, I suspect that's where the problem lies. Schools teach to the test because, really, all schools teach to some kind of test. Students need to pass a licensure exam, and it's the school's job to make sure that they do. Many schools publish the pass rate on their students, and if you're a student who chose your school based on that, well, then you're complicit as well. Actually, we all are. We all want standards. We want licensure. We want to know that the people who have the same degree that we do and the same license that we do, that they have enough of what it takes so that our profession advances. Yes, you do have to pass a certain bar to enter this club, and you need some gumption and some smarts and some compassion and willingness to work out all kinds of things that you don't yet understand. So somehow a standard gets created, and for good reasons, but then it's easy to focus on the standard and conflate it with completion. That if we make that bar, then we understand the medicine. If we do that, then we've made a grave mistake because getting a degree and a license doesn't mean you understand the medicine. It means you have enough to get started. It means you have the tools and potential to begin learning from your own unsupervised clinical experience. I understand this is an enormous frustration for many, and many people feel cheated that after three to four years of school and tens of thousands of dollars spent, they feel less than completely prepared. And I suspect this is why there are numerous coaches and consultants who help people get through their first years of practice. This is why there are mentorship programs to your courses that will take you deeper into medicines that you didn't get on the national exam. And in all this noise and commotion, TCM often gets the blame for our shortcomings. I'd like to share a few thoughts on this. I don't think TCM is a problem. It's a stream of medicine that, due to conditions and circumstances, has found its way from China to the West and into our legal and professional systems. It is a part of the stream of medicine that has evolved and changed over centuries. It's not wrong. It might be incomplete, and it might be that due to our own deficiencies, we don't completely understand it well enough to get the kinds of clinical results we'd like to see. But I don't think it's the enemy. It's a part of the current in this moment in time 
that allows us to enter the stream of medicine. And most importantly, it gives us a common language. Go anywhere in the world and with the basics that you learn in school, you should be able to have a conversation with any other doctor of East Asian medicine and share your clinical experience and be able to learn from theirs. Anywhere in the world that I've traveled, in English or in Chinese, I found I could talk to the doctors there. Go to China or Japan or Taiwan or Korea. You'll share enough common ideas around medicine that you should be able to learn something new. Granted, those doctors may not work in the ways that you do, but the basics that you learn from TCM, it's going to allow you access to the other streams of thought and practice. You know, all nets catch fish. And while it's true that different nets catch different kinds of fish, what's more important is that you know how to use the net that you've got. Most of us will find that we are drawn to different aspects of medicine as we become seasoned with practice. And while it's easy in the service of marketing our practices to show that we are distinctive in one way or another, in the end, it's probably not helpful to boost our practice up by pushing another's practice down. We all walk through the gate of TCM in the West. I don't think it's wrong. It's just how things have evolved. And if we learn our fundamentals and learn them well, then we can access the wide and varied streams of practice that you don't learn about in school. A degree and a license in Chinese medicine does not mean we understand Chinese medicine. It means we have an opportunity to engage in a practice that no doubt will transform with the passing of years. And if you've been listening to the podcast here, you'll know that the insights and the methods of the practitioners that you've listened to here, they all stem from a series of fundamentals that allowed us to begin to see the world in terms of yin and yang, five-phase transformations, the six levels of climactic influence, and how our psychology isn't separate from our physiology. As Westerners, we don't have the option of leaving behind our Western thinking. It's just part of who we are. And we don't get to avoid the influence of TCM. It's part of the soup that we swim in. It's the gate we walk through. The idea is to keep on walking. Oh man, I probably should have put a soapbox warning on that. If you've got other thoughts on this, please feel free to share them with me via email or over on the Facebook group. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool. 
a sharpened wire, and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Simon Feeney, welcome to Geological. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor and a pleasure. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for some time and it's, yeah, it's just been wonderful, inspiring and interesting and all things good, all things Chinese medicine. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you for that, uh, for that, that plug. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I'm excited to talk to you. I, you know, I should never say things like that to my guests. I should never say I'm t- excited to talk to you because I'm actually excited to talk to everybody that 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 I'm talking to. Uh, it's just kind of the way this podcast rolls. It's great. I've I've love your I love your attitude to it, and uh, and uh, I think when we were speaking on the phone, you were saying that you just wanted it to be spontaneous. So um, I haven't prepared, so I thought I'd just um, go along with that whole that whole ideology. Thought it was great. 
When it comes to preparation, and the reason why I don't think too much about preparation for this is because we're already prepared. Because the kinds of things that we explore, the kinds of things we're going to get into, the kind of stuff I want to talk to you about, you don't need to prepare your life. You've been doing your life. Yeah, you'd like you know? to think so. Yeah. No, but it's absolutely true. I mean, even when we're going at times off the rails, we're still doing our life. And and it's usually taking us somewhere. I mean, there's never there are no straight lines in nature, and there's no straight lines in our life either. So... Sometimes even the things that seem like, oh my God, what the hell am I doing? Sometimes you look back in 10 years and you go, oh my God, I was spot on. I had no idea. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever? Oh, 100%. I think, it's, I think it's great. I remember, um, what was it you said in your, I was reading at the bottom of your email the other day. It said something like, if it can't, it's difficult to tell the differences between things falling apart and things coming back together or falling together or something like that? It's difficult to tell the difference between things falling apart and things falling together. There you go. I just love that idea, That idea, you know, and, and uh, it really puts, uh, puts things into perspective. Yeah. So, yeah, let's hope it just, um, let's hope inspiration takes us on a journey today and hopefully your listeners can, <laughs> can indulge us a little. <laughs> Well, I suspect inspiration has already taken us on this journey. And, and one of the things that I'm always curious to know about other people that have found their way into the Chinese medicine world, especially us honky Westerners, is what got you, what caught your attention? What drew you into Chinese medicine? Mm. Well, for me, uh, Chinese medicine came at the sort of at the end of my journey um, because my journey began after I was uh, snowboarding, I used to be a professional snowboarder. So after I finished that, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, professional snowboarder. Yeah, so I used to be in you know in competitions uh, nationally and internationally, like half pipe and going upside down and triple turns and all that crazy stuff. Mainly, mainly big air jumps, yeah, and board across. And then uh-huh. as I got into other things, I went you know did a lot of backcountry riding, and then I just got sort of met some people and, um, you know, got into this vegetarian thing. And then I went, went to the extremes and went vegan at one point I was fruitarian. And then, so that kind of, you know, I wouldn't recommend that again, but it was an interesting journey. And that led me to, uh, getting inspired by, by, by people, uh, Franciscan monk. So, uh, the well, St. Francis of Assisi, I heard about St. Francis of Assisi one day. And then I just thought that was amazing, you know, that anyone, I was just so into possessions and, you know, uh, material things like, you know, snowboarding is, is, is a world of and competition and all this sort of stuff. And then just couldn't believe that someone would renounce women, clothing, lifestyle, all these things, and just take off all their clothes and go and live in nature not to mention give up lift passes give up what sorry lift passes <laughs> that's it absolutely well i started um yeah just walking up the hills and i refused to get on the lifts and really so so part of your journey was i'm walking up the damn hill yeah then i'm gonna ride down well i just felt yeah you had to earn it you know if you're gonna ride down you have to earn and it just it inspired a different kind of uh, riding for me and you know a lot of more backcountry stuff was was more interesting, but it just it isolated me from the community and from everyone, and I just made everyone feel terrible all the time because I was always, you know, doing the opposite to them. 
So I kind of got out of that world and then gave up all my possessions, took off my shoes. I basically had a pair of hemp pants, no underpants and a hemp t-shirt and a little hemp bag with a bottle of water. And um, I just went, went exploring and I'll, you know, just basically just kept walking around and looking for, I was looking for a monk and I didn't care what kind of monk I could find. I just wanted to meet a monk because I just thought this idea is just ridiculous. There couldn't possibly be humans on this planet. It was just so far from my concept of what life was. And I heard about this monk was in this area. And the night before I met him, I had this dream that, um, that I was going to meet him and it was going to happen in a, in a series, in a sequence. So I was going to go to this place, then I'm going to go to this place, then I'm going to go to this place, this place, about six places. And at the sixth place, I was going to leave and I was going to turn around and then that person was going to tell me where it was. And the following day, I followed that process. I just, it, it seems a little bit strange to tell the story, but this is, real, this is really what happened. And then I got to the sixth place and I was walking out and I remember thinking, this can't be true. And then all of a sudden, this lady called me back and said, oh, you're you looking for this monk? Oh, yeah, he's just up the road. And <laughs> I found this monk. So I went walking into this, in this, into this, um, this church because I thought a monk kind of would live at a church and knocked on the door and there was a priest in there and he said, oh, this, I said, are you a monk? And he said, no, <laughs> he was just doing some paperwork. <laughs> some guy with no Just shoes doing email and, here yeah. <laughs> and um he said no no i'm not a monk and i didn't like the place it was all very clean and had you know perfect car parks and and he said no i'm not a monk but there's a monk next door and i said oh really and he said yeah but he's buddhist and i said i didn't care because you're just looking for a monk i was looking for a monk uh-huh. uh, and i went next door and and this guy and, and it was just run down, old temple, just grass growing everywhere and herbs all over the place and this old caravan broken down. And I knocked on the door and I waited a while. And I was really quiet inside and just everything in my body just went peaceful. And then this door just creaked open and the smell of incense and this kind of purple golden light came out. And he goes, yes. <laughs> and I said, Hi, my name's Simon. Are you a monk? I, I heard that there's a monk here. Can I? And he said, yes, I am a monk. And I said, oh, uh, I was wondering if I could just come in and talk to you a little bit about, you know, what you think about life. And he said, sure, come in. And we sat down and talked philosophy for about five hours or so. And he just blew my mind. And, um, yeah, he's been my teacher for the last... 20, I'm getting older every year. I tell, I think about this, but yeah, it's over 20 years now, 20, maybe when I was, so yeah, 23 years or so. And uh, I was a temple boy at his temple. And then we traveled all over uh, Thailand and Burma. So this started out, you were in Oz, correct? Yeah, this is all in Australia. Yeah, in Canberra. Right, 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 right. It's the capital. So you're looking for this monk. You find this Buddhist guy. Mm. So what's his affiliation? I mean, what, what's his backstory and how come you're ending up in Thailand and all these other places? So one day we were having lunch and as we always did, and uh, he said to me, Simon, I want to go to Thailand. You come? I said, sure. Okay, we go. Two weeks. Okay. And we got on a plane and I took him because he just got his passport 
so he was from uh, from uh, Myanmar. Mm. It was then it was Burma, and now he's from an ethnic minority in Burma called Mon M O N. Oh, the they Mon. Are, yeah. So there's Hmong and there's Mong and then there's Mon. So the Mon people were overthrown by the Burmese king about 300 years ago, and they 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 had a kingdom called Hong Sawatoi, and that kingdom was vast. It covered all of Burma, all through the Thai Peninsula, um, into Bangkok. You know, they they reached all the way through that area of Southeast Asia. And as the Burmans came down, and the Chinese came down, and then the um, and the Indians as well coming from one side, the Thais from the from the uh, from the east, they slowly, slowly sort of shrank into this little state. Now it's called Mon State in um, present day Myanmar. So their language is very old, and the Burmese language comes from their language. Uh, but the the story goes that the Burmese king, when he gave the language to so the Mon king, when he gave the language to the Burmese king, he kept two consonants. And the reason he did that was because those were associated with the the Pali scripture, or the scripture, the Buddhist scripture. So they could take all the politics and the education, and the and the, you know they could have access to language and or the you know the written word, but they could never get deep into the philosophy of Buddhism because the two Mon brothers brought Buddhism to Burma. And they kept a piece of the language for themselves. To interpret, to interpret these old texts mm-hmm. uh, and to read the, uh, the, uh, their interpretations of the, the old Pali scripture. So that's how the language... Uh, came down. So my teacher is one of, he used to be one of five people in the world who could read this. Now he's one of three people in the world who can read this. And he is the top of those three. Uh, he is an absolute treasure. And um, so his, his language was getting, his, the manuscripts were getting lost. No one was able to read these anymore, but they, they held valuable information. And some of them single pieces of scripture one time i asked recently in a trip we went to 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 burma recently and he he, i asked him bundy what's the oldest uh scripture that you've found and without a second hesitation he said 1078 and i said oh right so the you know the oldest sort of because it's 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 written down and then it's copied and then it's copied and it's copied and it's copied and it's copied and copied and so you'll get a lot of chinese medicine books came down the same way precisely precisely So then he said to me, yeah, it's in 1078. So I said, you mean, you know, one that like 1780, as in like 10,000. No, 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 1,078 years old, the the actual piece of parchment. And I just, this is amazing. So we went, we were just handling things that were two, 300, 400 years old, some 700 years old. And by the time they get to sort of seven, 800 years, they really start to fall apart. (laughs) And so we went to to take some of those manuscripts out of the country because the the monasteries were getting burnt, the monks were getting killed, the villages were getting taken over, so they had to be preserved. And so we, I digitalized those. So I was my job was to basically photograph and document all of those scriptures, put them on a. So, so you're basically like this modern day monk 
but instead of transcribing from one ancient piece of parchment to a new one, you're digitizing it. Yeah, and then we put it on, uh, put it on his computer, and then he would be able to, and then it would be preserved because, yeah, they were just getting they were just getting uh, lost, and just recently, about uh, well, not recently, a year and a half ago, we went there, and we found this old this this island that hadn't been uh, accessed by by many people. So the monk that was the abbot of that monk, that, that monastery was over a hundred years old and he had never seen a white person. So he'd never seen someone like Caucasian. He mm-hmm. had never left the temple. And so he'd basically been on this Island his whole life and he was over a hundred years old and he'd never met any Burmans or people, any tourists coming over because no one could access the Island. Anyway, the recently only a year prior to us being there, this bridge was built over to this island. And so we went over there after this bridge was built and my teacher was very excited because he'd never seen this, uh, these scriptures. And so he went over there and, uh, and, no one, and, and we found this huge temple and there was this huge wall. I'm talking probably 10 metres tall and it's just this huge shrine just built on layer on layer on layer on layer over the years. And the sort of the top section... We climbed all the way up to the top and got behind it. And he was yelling from the bottom, what's there? What's there? And I said, Bunty is full of teak chests. And he said, ah, the teak chests, good, open them. So we cracked these teak chests. And you had to take apart the the shrine because the shrine was built on top of the the teak chests over the years. So we open up the thing and it is full with scripture. Absolutely full. I'm talking nine huge tea chests full of scripture. I've got all videos of the whole process and um, they were perfectly preserved and they'd been there hundreds and hundreds of years. And I said to Bunho, this is so funny that we're coming from Australia and doing this because Australia was founded, you know, it was was colonized, you know, uh, after these (laughs) these were put in this temple. (laughs) We're just having a little laugh. Anyway. So you guys are like Indiana Jones. So you, so you and him, you trail around, you get these scriptures. Can you read these scriptures? I can't. No, I can't. Nobody, I mean, like I said, no, only but he does. People. Yeah, there's only a couple of people in the world who can read them. Does he do translations of them? What's happening with them? I mean, here we are, we're supposed to talk about Chinese medicine, and now we're like deep into Buddhist relics. Yeah, there. yeah. All right. You can edit whatever you need out. <laughs> no, no, this is great. This is great. I mean, I, uh, it's always so curious the paths that we take. It's, it's usually unexpected. I mean, none of us in our high school, you know, career counseling experience had someone go, why don't you think about Buddhism or Chinese medicine mm. or something like that? No one says nice. that, right? We wander into this stuff on our own. We just get lucky and we go off on a tangent. We do. Yeah. yeah. So, so I just want to know, is your teacher taking this stuff and translating it, making it accessible to the rest of us? He is. He wrote a really uh, a large book that was translating the old grammar. So he's a linguist, basically. Um, so he translates the old grammar into the sort of current, explains the grammar of the ancient language in current day Mon and then references it to, to a lot of the Pali language because a lot of, there's a lot of study done in Pali. And so he talks about that, um, that, that grammar because it's very, very complicated grammar. 
And that's oh really God, what it comes down to. He's such a geeky guy, isn't he? He's amazing. He is something totally else. Geek. So is any of this in English or is it or is it just in Hmong? Mars in Mon and Pali, yeah. Mon and yeah. Pali. Yeah, you got you gotta be deep into it to get it, huh? Oh, this is deep. This is heavy. Yeah, yeah. this is heavy study. Yeah, it's very, very it's it's his specialty is uh, is the monastic order. So how monks conduct themselves in relationship in their relationship to society. That's pretty much what he focuses on. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. So here you are, this ex-snowboard dude, hanging with this monk. What are you learning from this cat? <laughs> um, just, you know, just meditation and philosophy. And then he says to me one day, I noticed that these scriptures, they're a little bit smaller than the other ones. Um, and I said, Bunty, what's with these little scriptures? And he said, oh, they're medicine texts. I said, why are they smaller? Why are they cut smaller? He said, oh, because the monks could put them in their robes and then travel. Or, uh, you know, put them in their robes and then go and look uh, at the trees and this and sort of stuff. And or go to a village and then be able to pull them out and know how what to prescribe. Right. How to help people. And help people. So that's fascinating. What what kind of things does it treat? I'm looking through this and I see all these charts and he's like, oh, that's for, you know, just a it's just a flu and this to that and this to this and this to that. And then he said to me, Oh, this is for oh, what's that condition where your uh, your legs are all you know, your body's all welting, falling apart, your skin's falling off. And I said, Oh, leprosy? Oh, your leprosy. That formula treats leprosy. <laughs> right. And uh, he said, oh, it's a very, very good one. And then uh, the, basically over the years just saw that it, it was everything from, uh, you know, the common cold to black magic. And the monks needed to understand all of this to be effective in their treatment of the community to the Sangha because that would perpetuate their own existence and help people. So, well, and Plus, you know, your job as a monk is to relieve suffering. Precisely, precisely. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed in one temple was that I was talking about this particular, he said, oh, this is a particular plant, that's a particular plant. And he said, oh, it's just out the front. And then it's, it's just, this one's out the front, this one's over there. And it was always in the vicinity of the, of the monasteries. And then what had happened over time is people, monks would plant those trees around the temples. And so when you go outside some of these temples, it's just full of medicinal plants. 
And these kids, the monks would just say, yeah, kid, you know, scurry up this plant and get that leaf. It's springtime at this, the moon's right, blah, blah, blah. And they would scurry up the tree, collect these things, come and dry them and make this medicine for the monks. And it's just fascinating. I just thought there's so much information here. I want to do something. I want to help him. I want to help the people that, that are impoverished and in, uh, you know, come from a different, that, that can't snowboard, you know, I really wanted to buy them a snowboard. No, I'm just joking. But, <laughs> no, no, but, but, but seriously, so you're hanging with this monk. I mean, are you making a living? Are you living at the monastery? What, I mean, what's your life look like at this moment? Just living at the monastery, you know, just eating the food at the temple and what was given to me. So you went looking for a monk and you turned into one. Well, yeah, I was never, I was ordained, but years later, but I never ordained. So I was yeah, always in for a short period of time, but I never really, I just stayed as a temple boy and just took care of my teacher. Uh-huh. Just the temp, just the medicinal temple boy. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then he said, he said to me one day, he said, okay, Simon, you've like, I've, you know, I, 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 it would have been about, I think I was, I didn't really know what they were doing. You know, I was just watching. I watched the way that they, Made made pills and ground things and dried things and prepared things, and but I never really learnt. Like nobody really teaches you there. It's a different kind of education. And then one day, it was probably about I reckon I was with him probably eleven, twelve years. And then he said to me one day, we were sitting down quietly, and he said to me, "Turmeric," and my ears just perked up. This is the first time he actually was going to give me a discourse. On a herb, the medicinal properties of a herb. Oh my God. You've been hanging with him for 11 years and now you're beginning to get a discourse. Yeah. And so he said, you know, turmeric given like this, mixed with this, mixed with that, is good for women like this, like that, and basically gave me an explanation. I was just trying to take it all in. And you're not, st- you're not studying medicine at this time. No. You're just no. being a temple boy. Yeah. And I listened and I, I paid attention. Then he would ask me questions to test me. You know, like pick up that plant on the ground here and tell me a little bit about it. And so I'd eat it and I'd say, it tastes like this. It's, it does this afterwards. It feels, I think, what is a treat? And I'd say, oh, it feels like it's doing this to my stomach, that to my stomach. And then he'd say, eat this for a week and meditate on it and whatever. So then it was a very traditional um, teaching. But years went on and I kind of needed to grow up a little bit. And he said, no one's going to take you seriously, Simon. Like, I can't. I tried to apply for, a, for a, a grant for doing some study and writing a book on his the medicinal substances of the Mon people and the formulas. I learned a lot, talked to a lot of practitioners, a lot of monks, and started writing this book. And then I tried to get a grant for it and just, you know, no one would take me seriously. Where's your credentials? Who the hell are you? Temple boy. Who the hell are you? Yeah, that's it. So he said, I can't give you a piece of paper. And you need to go and get yourself a piece of paper. So off I went and I thought, oh, I'll just go to Melbourne in, in Australia. I was going to, I was going to live in Melbourne with uh, someone I was seeing. And, and, and I said, uh, and I was like, oh, herbal medicine course. This looks interesting. And so I signed up and that was a degree in Chinese medicine. And then you got your paper. And yeah, five years later. I got a my degree and then went out and was disenfranchised by <laughs> the the traditional Chinese medicine model and then I did an undergraduate with a, a diploma with uh, with Arno Versluis through ICEM and 
met Arno and haven't looked back. Okay. So I, I want to dig into this for just a moment. When you say disenfranchised, mm. what happened? Well, I noticed that a lot of the the ideology that people have when they enter into Chinese medicine is very, uh, very romantic. But when reality comes, it's completely different. So, for example, uh, Qinghao, you know, Qinghao Artemisia annua. So, mm, so I remember doing a doing a, a paper on on Qinghao dispense in different ways, and how Qinghao, you know, as a as an extracted granule had this effect on malaria, and then uh, as a powder has this effect, and then cooked up in a decoction has this effect, and then the uh, I can't remember the name of the lady, but she she got a, a Nobel Prize in science for for this recently. And yeah, it was recent. It was in the it past year. A couple so. of years ago, it was. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so I remember studying that paper and just thinking, this is what it comes down to. You know, the fact that she took it out, she wrung out the juice, and then it activated the. Uh, it was much more effective against um, some of these uh, these malarial strains. And it was very interesting to me because I was working on the Thai Burma border, and there was just a lot of malaria there, and so it was really fascinating. And then. But when it came to practice, you know, everyone was not using raw herbs or just using powders or using the wrong dosages or reusing the wrong herbs so, and then administering it wrong. So I was just thinking this, something's got to change here. Change here. And for, I was fortunate enough to meet some um, very good herbalists and people who are doing it, uh, you know, as traditionally as they could. And when I got to clinic, I started realizing that that, you know, to, if I want to do this, I'm going to do this properly. So when something was a tongue, I would use it as a tongue, a decoction. When something was a san, a powder, I would use it as a powder. And if something was a wan, I'd use it as a wan, a, a pill. Right. And because this is how you learned it from the Buddhist monk that you were living with, being the temple boy for well, I just thought the source that there was so much emphasis on administration and preparation, and it was just being discarded by Chinese medicine. It was just, oh yeah, just boil it from here to here, and that was they were the good guy. They were the people who were doing it properly, considered doing it properly. Right. No, but what I mean is, you already had learned some of this stuff by being with your teacher and studying herbs. Is this correct? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. In terms of yeah, how to prepare things. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, how to administer them in different ways, and I just thought that that was just being lost in in the current um, paradigm of Chinese medicine, right? Because we just—I mean, we don't even know from what dynasty it comes from. We look at a formula and go, "Oh, Chinese medicine—that's Chinese medicine," but we don't know was it Han Dynasty, was it Tang Dynasty? I mean, those are really different circumstances. Yeah, very much so, and so you know if. You, my focus was just on the classical stuff because it was just, okay, we're just going to start with the foundations. Everything else is kind of built on that. So I went back to the foundations of the, the Shanhan Zabin Lun, the Shanhan Lun, and the Jingwei Yaoi. Would you say that the stuff that you learned from this Buddhist teacher of yours, was it more of a classical medicine? Was it more of a Shanghan type medicine or was it something else? I was always hoping for him to say, Oh, this is a formula that treats uh, you know the cold from the 
the wind or something, and then oh yeah, what's what's in it, Bunty? Oh, it's got some cinnamon. Oh, it's got some uh, peony and <laughs> ginger. But but uh, he never he never said that. So it's not. It's a very different. Uh, it's it's based on Ayurvedic medicine. Okay, so are the herbs that you learned with him more of Ayurvedic herbs, or was there a smattering of Chinese herbs? How did how would you say what you learned from him jibes with say what you learned with Arnaud? Uh, it it doesn't really in this, but in the sense that the 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 diagnosis is very very different. The administration is very, very different. So yeah, they're they're two different, very different things. Uh, uh, when it, I think yeah, I think we'll, maybe if I, we, I could separate them. So when I met Arno, I was asking him about the original dosages of of the Shanan Lun formulas because I'd never met anyone like him in Australia. We were very uh, weren't as fortunate as you guys are in the US, having very uh, having a little bit more history in your 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 practitioners and a bit more experience. We're, we're getting there, but um, oh, I don't know. I've heard it said that in many ways the Australians have it over us Americans because you're closer to China and and there's been much more exchange between Chinese and and Western people for a longer time in Australia than there has been in the United States. I've heard I've heard it said that way as well. Okay, maybe it's just that the Americans. I find Americans do things very well. Um, you know that they, they 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 take things to to a to a different level of um, sophistication. I, I I've thought uh, we're very haphazard in Australia. So, oh man, you should come spend some time here in the United States and see how how haphazard we can be. Really? Eh, I think so. Any okay. at any rate. Okay. What it sounds like is you had this amazing experience with your teacher that set you down the road of learning and working with herbs. You go and you get your basic TCM education, which, you know, it's the gate that we all walk through. You got to learn a common language. We got to pass a test. And then we actually get to start learning medicine. And you happen to cotton to what Arnaud has. That's right. And when I started reading these old texts, I was so excited. You know, it's it's got this preparation, it's got that preparation, there's all these weird dosages, and I was just in my element. Um, and I got really excited. And so I started, so when I met Arno, I started asking him, you know, what's this Liang thing and Sheng thing and Ju and Fen and Sheng and <laughs> Do and He and all this stuff. And he said... Right, right, because there's all these different dosages in the Chinese when you start to look at it. Yeah. Absolutely, because I tried to make these formulas for my patients, um, and I was confused. I go back. I was like, "Okay, just my by default, just go back to the original text. That's just what you do." Right? <laughs> I thought, and so you know, you read something like Mazarin one, and you go, "Okay, Homaren, Tu Sheng, uh, Xiao Yao, Half a Jin, Zhe uh, Shi, Eight Liang, Xing Ren." Uh, you know, one Sheng, one Chu, one Jin. I have no idea what this guy's talking about. How am I supposed to do this? Right. What's the What's the dang measurement? What's the measurement? What's the gram measurement? So I study. Everyone says, "Oh, yeah, it's a, the one Liang three grams." And I was like, "Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting." And then I try. Okay, well, how come? Okay, this is Guizhi Tang, three Liang of Guizhi versus twelve pieces of darts out. Oh, yeah, but we just that's a lot of darts out, don't you think? When you look at it physically. And then I remember teachers saying, oh, yeah, you just reduce the darts out to six pieces or three pieces or whatever they do. And I was, oh, 
okay, so you're saying that Jung Jing's wrong. Oh, no, but the dart cell, no one knows what the size of a dart cell is. I was like, well, I just was in on the Thai Burma border and there's dart cell trees there. Right, you know what a dart cell looks changed. like. <laughs> I know what a dart cell tree looks like. We used to pick them. And, um, oh, okay, so what's the problem? And they haven't changed for years and years and years, so what's the problem? And anyway, so that really started to spike my interest. And I, so I went up to Arno and, and, I, and Arno, I said, you know, what's, I, I thought that, I've been doing some research and I think that, that Wan Liang is, is 15.625 grams. And he said to me, okay, well, that's, that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting um, ideas about that. Just come and, t- come and speak to me when you've used Xiao Chai Hu Tang with Chai Hu at 125 grams. Holy smokes. And I was, and he was just kind of looked at me like, and? And I, you know, do you have that experience? And I, and I, wait a minute, wait a minute. hang on, hang on. I, I just got to ask, yeah. are we talking about a day, two days, a, a three day, days, one bag, a, yeah, day. a day, yeah, 120 yeah. grams. Half, yeah. Half a gin. Chai. Yeah. Half a gin, eight liang. So obviously, you know, and, and, and Arno follows, follows the tradition of his lineage and uh, which is, you know, this is what, this is what his whole uh, basis of his understanding is. It's really, it's fascinating. It's so precise and you know I, I love it to bits and so I took that as a personal challenge so I went away and practiced I tried to use it like these original dosages and the results were astonishing okay so hang on for, for just a second this is great <laughs> just I'm imagining so damn many herbs I don't even know if I could fit them in a pot that I have in my own kitchen mm-hmm. and this is one day's worth of herbs Yep. And you were using this on your patients or you tried it on your own self first? I tried it on myself first, but... but yeah, if, I, I, I suspected you would. Yeah. What was your experience when you took herbs at that kind of concentration? Well, I'll just say before I did that, I did a lot of research. So I wanted to be sure because when I read you know, Mitchell and Wiseman's Shanhan Lun, they talked about this measurement. 15.625 grams as one liang. And I thought, that's a very precise number. <laughs> that's not something they've just plucked out of the air. 15.625 grams? What's happening here? Hmm. So I tried to understand where it was from and so went way back into the study and found out that it was actually from this measurement of a, a, a bell, a pitch pipe of a bell, and then you pack it full of broom corn millet um, and then that broom corn millet is then weighed and counted out, and then that weight will equal half a gin, half a liang, and then blah 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 blah. You do all these things, and basically you come to the conclusion that it's fifteen point six two five. And I say, like, well, I don't really believe that. I need to test that. So I went and became a specialist on broom corn millet. So I studied the history of broom corn millet, and then got the pitch pipe and then packed it and then counted out the little seeds one by one <laughs> and then weighed it. You know, I'm, I'm, st- I'm still not sure how a snowboard dude mm. turns into someone like you. Yeah, I don't know. I think, well, my, <laughs> my, my dad's a, a, a PhD in algebra. So this kind of stuff, it just, I guess I got to a certain age and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I think I might look into this a little yeah. bit, the mathematics of it. So... I kept studying and, and started to work out, you know, the Sheng measurement, the Liang measurement, the Chu measurement, which was a really interesting one because 
A Sheng measurement is a volume measurement, and no one argues this measurement. So what happens when you take a Sheng measurement and you mix it with a Liang measurement is you've got a volume measurement and a weight measurement. So when we do medicine, we're talking about ratio. And when I was making these pills and powders for my patients, it was all about ratio. So Wumei one, for example. So when, we, when I made Wumei one for the first time, if I did it with the, with the current weighing system, it would basically just turn into a big goo. But when I weighed it out according to the old measurements and the study associated with those old measurements, it was perfect. I'm talking, I'm talking when you made the dough, it didn't, it just, you know, your hands were clean at the end. It was just perfectly rolled out this amount of pills. And then I thought, well, this is interesting. Why does one pill only weigh one total pill only weigh you know let's say uh you know 500 grams whereas another pill is this huge massive amount that weighs five kilos why didn't he just say why didn't jungle Jing just say one part this one part that one part this like are people to uh, translate the word fun as part but it's not it's a measurement it's 3.4 grams 3.9 grams sorry so right. well i mean it depends on how you are looking at fun because fun mm. can have multiple meanings. It, it could mean a meanings. part of. It can. It right? can. I mean, English has the same kind of thing. We, you have to understand the context. Exactly. So when it's in the context of the relationship with a Liang measurement, um, as in uh, Wuling Sun, then it's a measurement. It's not a part. You can't have one Liang of something and then one fun of something because, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because it also can be a weight. So, because it's a, it's a division of a liang. If you're dividing things, otherwise it stands for a certain amount of something. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So if it's all fen, if the measurement's all in fen, then you can say, okay, it's just one part this, one part that. Is that is that correct? You you obviously know more about you know you know much more about the um, linguistics of it. I was thinking if the measurement is all in fen, mm. then it would it would be more of like a weight, this much of this, this much of that. But if you're talking about that you might be using this many liang and this this many sheng and you know mm. that kind of thing, and then you divide it into so many fun, then you're dividing it into so many pieces. Right, right. That's my thought, but you're more of an expert on this than I am. I have not made these traditional medicines. Yeah, and th that's what it comes down. It does come down to actually physically doing it, and when you physically do it, yeah. you realize, wow, this is really precise. This is exactly when I'm making it. It and what was what, the other things were interesting about it was that what what, it was, what I found was really fascinating was that okay why is this thing five hundred grams why is this thing fifteen kilos and then we divide it by the size of the pills and what we can actually do is we can determine the amount of time that this is supposed to be administered so why is Li Jong one only for a couple of days whereas Wu Mei one is for six months four four to six months or Da Hong oh Chong one. Someone's got to take Umei one for six months. They do. Ugh. They do. And guess guess why it doesn't work in three days when people take it. You know, people use it for three days. Oh, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, because you're supposed to take it for six months. And other interesting things happen um, because of that, based on the five element, but uh, that and some of the observations. But the the thing about it, which was really I thought was really fascinating, is that it allows you to give your patients prognosis. So you can be sure that, okay, you've got to, you know, in six months, this is what we expect to happen. You have to be taking consistently for this period of time. And because the question is, why did Zhang Jing do it like that? 
and then started looking at some of the formulas that were associated around, around associated with uh, pregnancy and found that the exact weights of those formulas, so something like Dangwe-san, Dangwe-shaya-san, um, those formulas, the weights of those formulas, and when you divide them by divide them by the uh, the dose of the daily administration versus the total weight, you can you can gather how many days it's supposed to be taken for, and that exactly coincides with one uh, trimester, which is just awesome. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. That's what's well, good thing you've got some math in your background. I am curious about six months of umewan mm-hmm. tell me more about i mean it's hard for me to imagine someone taking that delicious formula for six months what kind of situation would we be looking at where somebody would be administering it for six months well all the i mean you know enduring diarrhea is the is one of the first indications for it pain below the umbilicus is one of the main indications for wume it goes all the way back to the shinon bensiaji the um withering flesh so when somebody has um has a has a dysbiosis the dysbiosis can act to destroy some of the c-reactive protein in the skin because it consumes that and then the skin will lose that elasticity and look like dead and withering skin which is one of the primary um uh, indications for it for wume in particular and then of course you know, you have a, the pulse that indicates the Wumei one, which is uh, depending on your lineage, uh, you have to, you know, so, you know, if you have that diagnostics. And then, uh, you know, you can, you can get stool samples for blastocystis hominis and any kind of diantamoebas. It works amazingly for. So basically, if you have some sort of terrible parasitic infection, mm-hmm. you're going to take this for six months to, to resolve it. It's going to take some time. Yeah, and I found that the, one of the interesting things when I was prescribing it a lot was that it's very, very effective for, rheumat- for rheumatic arthritis. They originally had this case um, where this patient came in and she'd had rheumatoid arthritis crippling, you know, ulnar deviated, and um, she was quite um, deformed from this uh, long-term, over 20-year uh, rheumatic arthritis and just in constant pain for that time. And... It took about six months on the Wumei one before she started seeing 
her pain decrease. Well, she started seeing pain decreasing around about four months, but I told her you need to stay it on to six months, stay on to six months. And it's interesting because people go through these um, these big phases of, um, you know, when the parasite starts speaking to their mind, you know, the parasitologists and how they, they've documented all this incredible, uh, you know, the, the, the parasites start releasing all these cytotoxins that make you think that whatever you're doing is wrong for you and then they refuse that and they can manipulate your mind quite quite interestingly. And the when they start doing that, so they try to get off the formula and you just got to convince them, no, 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 remember I told you that you've been got to be taking this for six months and you would have this symptom. Remember I told you that you were going to complain and you were going to say that <laughs> you can tell them this early at the beginning. And this is the other thing about this prognosis is you can educate them on the way through. Don't worry, maybe next month it's going to start to happen. And and then they have to follow a very strict diet plan, which is all stipulated in the in the classics. Like nothing that I'm saying is 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 not in the classics. It's all It's all there. The first time I used it was when had this uh, young girl at this uh, orphanage at this Thai Burma border and she was vomiting uh, roundworms. So I was like, oh my gosh, I never thought I'd ever see this. You know, you go to school and, oh yeah, when people are vomiting roundworms, you give Wume one, you're probably never going to see this. All of a sudden this girl's like vomiting roundworms. Wow, awesome. So we use Wume one and yeah, cured her, you know. So yeah, so they're the inter- some of the interesting things in clinic is this is with rheumatic arthritis. I'm not sure I completely understand how it works and why, but I've just seen it over and over and over. But it's just you know it's just anecdotal. You've seen it be effective. Yeah, it's just my anecdotal experience. But I encourage yeah. people to try it. I want to go back to something you just said a moment ago about modern day parasitologists talk about parasites as having an influence on a person's mm. mental outlook. I'm not familiar with this. Can you tell us more about it? Well, there's, as far as I know, there's lots of research on how the, how the parasites can release toxins as they die off. They release this um, toxin into the system, or they can actually do that if they're under threat to convince the nervous system or to convince the, the mind that, that they need to stop doing what they're doing and do something else because, yeah, this is just a way of, the, for, of them surviving. But obviously, we've lived in a symbiotic relationship with many, many parasites for, for many, many years and we continue to do so. Um, but it's just about that, that, that balance of... of healthy bacteria and parasites in the system, which allows for the optimization of our system. It certainly raises the question, doesn't it, of how many of the thoughts we have are actually our thoughts then? Yeah, that's, that's true. Well, that's an interesting rabbit hole, but one I'm probably not wanting to go down at this mm. moment. <laughs> so coming back for a moment to the amount of herbs that was traditionally used in Shanghan formulas. In your clinical work today, what kind of dosing do you use? Well, because these, what we call Han dosing formulas are extremely large and they're obviously expensive as the, we use very, very good quality herbs and therefore expensive or more expensive herbs. They become very unaffordable for people. Now you've got to factor all these things into clinic, and of course patient compliance. But I think that patient compliance is often, more often than not, a cop out of the practitioner rather than the patient. I think if you ask the patient 
I can get you better in a week and it's going to cost you $100 or I can get you uh, better in four months and it's going to cost you $20 a month, you know, a week or whatever it is. They, they're going to take, if you gave people those cho- that choice, I think they would, they would, they would um, choose to get better quicker. If you say this is more effective, if people ask you, you know, this is more effective, what's more effective? If you answer honestly, well, bulk herbs are more effective, then I think that if you were sick, you would really want that choice. If it, it come, it, then it comes down to, okay, well, so you've got someone well, you've said, you've given them advice, look, I'm going to use this huge dose of herbs in a short period of time, because that's all Zhang Renjing did. We don't know how long he gave those decoctions for. So we can know, we can calculate, and I've calculated all the formulas in the Shanhan Zabin Lun, all the pills and the powders down to the day down to the half day in some cases, how long they're supposed to be taken for, at what dose, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't know how long those decoctions were given for because we lost the, the tongue edging and perhaps that information was in that. But all we know is how to cook them, the, the preparation of how to cook them and how to administer them and what foods to avoid, et cetera. Right, because that's all in the Shanghai Lun. But what we can assume very often, very more often than not, it's down to three sheng. Uh, yeah, down to, it boils down to three sheng at the end, regardless of what we're doing at the start. It boils down to three sheng, which is 600 mils. And then, it's given, and then it's given one sheng three times a day. So basically, that 600 mils will be given at 200 mils three times a day. So that's at the daily dose. Sometimes it'll cross over, like Tao Ching Chi Tang will cross over into a day and a half, or other formulas will slightly vary, you know, take two doses today and then one dose tomorrow or something like that. But the majority of the time, that's what it is. So we know, okay, it's definitely for a day's dose because he's not saying any more. But it doesn't mean he's not saying, well, do this every single day or do it, you know, let's say it's a Tai Young disease or do it for one day, Yang Lin for two, Xiao Young disease for three. We, we don't know. There's no way of knowing. And et cetera, et cetera, through the, through the confirmations. But for chronic conditions, who knows? Just take till the disease gets better. I mean, in our case, nowadays, we just take till the pulse gets better. Well, or the patient starts to feel better. We notice things are changing for them. That's that's right. But if you know, if the pulse is still there, sometimes you know that takes precedent, just depending on how what, what what your system is. But yeah, so we don't know. So so we came up with a different idea of, of doing uh, different different scales of dosing. So we did Han dose, and we did what we called um, at at ten. So taking one liang as equaling ten grams. And then just for, for mathematics, it's quite quick to dispense. Okay, it's four liang of this, just 40 grams of that, three liang of this, three, 30 grams of that. Just quick for, to do. But then it comes complicated when you get the pieces and then the sheng measurement. So we built calculators that do all that stuff, and I built an app that does that. And then, and then we did uh, at the 10 dose and then at five dose, so basically taking that liang dose, timesing it by 10, and then halving it. So you're taking each liang to equal five grams. Mm-hmm. And then also just the, the, the common three liang um, because I was following Anno's uh, Anno-Vasilis' system so I would, we would take that dose as well. So there was a kind of dosage range but, but the most important thing about that is what we were, when we were administering the formula we were administering it with the proper cooking process. So you have different processes of cooking which do different things to the formula, changes the synergy of the formula. For example, at any kind of xie xintang, so gan sao, xinjiang or bang xia xie xintang when you cook that formula you cook it from um, roughly 2.4 mils down to 1,200. Then you remove the herbs and then you take the liquid and you boil the liquid down to 600, six sheng down to three sheng. In that process, you're harmonizing the flavors because, and it's the same in the case of 
Xiao Chahu Tang, same in the case of Chahu Guiji Ganjiang Tang. Those formulas are harmonizing formulas, so you have to harmonize them when you cook them. This part of the process is absolutely imperative. And I, I, any of your listeners, listeners want to try this for themselves, I would encourage you, do a decoction. It's a very interesting process. Do a decoction of that formula and just basically boil it down from 2.2 or 2.4 liters down to 600, just from herbs all the way. Do your double cooks or whatever the sort of the way that people do things nowadays. Or, and then do it and then remove the herbs and then boil the liquid. The taste and the flavor, you can literally, if you've got a good enough palate, you can taste the way that the flavors have blended into each other and have have balanced each other out. It's cooking. (laughs) This is an art. And we're taking the art out. So, so the cooking is a totally different. I mean, I'm thinking about the way I learned to cook herbs. You do it for 45 minutes, spill it out. You put some water in another 30 minutes, spill it out, put them together. Sure, that's true go. for some formulas, but some of the formulas that that that's, that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're just like single message to the body, simple system. This is, but when you're using more complicated formulas, you need to harmonize them. Especially harmonizing formulas, you harmonize the flavor. It's like saying, oh, yeah, we're going to cook some, I'm just going to cook some um, some food for you. And uh, I'm just going to throw everything into a pot and just cook it for a bit. <laughs> Rather than, you know, I'm going to get the onions, I'm going to bring them to, I'm going to get the garlic and put it through a bit, a bit of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, I'm going to, you know, the, think about a curry, think about the complexities in the of, of, a, of an Indian curry, the way that, the, which, when the spices are added and how that, changes the flavor this is a flavor medicine as well we're using these flavors to have physiological uh, actions on the body we're trying to harmonize uh, we're trying to get a physiological response with flavor bitter descending pungent dispersing etc so we need to be able to use these flavors and if we don't have them and we don't balance them right then it's not like we're not going to still get effect, but it's just like what what potential could our medicine really have, or what you know? And we've got this literature, which is the classical information, which is just so informative. And then when we have these formulas that are decocted, what we have is we have the water soluble aspects of the herbs. So when we have powders, we're doing something different, where we're taking that powder into the stomach. So it's opening into the stomach. As opposed to a pill where we have the pill, the pills have honey and honey acts as a, has a few different purposes. One is it, it naturally preserves the herbs in their state, which is great. It's very, very convenient. But more, more than that, the honey is an ingredient in the pill. So it has antibacterial properties. But what it also does is it acts as a slow release mechanism. So we, what, we're, what we're saying when we use a pill like that is that it opens into the small intestine. In the same way that Western medicine coats different, different substances in different mediums. So a you know, veggie cap opens into the stomach versus a, a gelatin cap, which opens into the small intestine. When that pill opens into the small intestine, what we're doing is we're using certain herbs that we want to get into the bloodstream. And then when we combine them with another medicinal substance, which is um, rice wine, that rice wine allows for the permeability through the walls of the small intestine. So when we take a pill, it goes into the stomach, it doesn't open into the stomach, then it travels into the small intestine, and then you take the alcohol with it, 
and then the alcohol allows that herb to go to go into the walls of the small intestine, which is where we absorb all our nutrients. So something like uh, anything that has Sheng Di Huang in it is taken with alcohol. The reason Sheng Di Huang is now prepared over the years into something like Shou Di, uh, you know, Shou Di Huang, and it's prepared with wine, is because it's very, very uh, cloying on the stomach and it can cause diarrhea very easily. And, and you often give it to to patients with deficiency taxation. So, for example, if we take two examples of Da Huang Zhe Chong Wan and, uh, and Shen Qi Wan, or Ba Wei Di Huang Wan, both those formulas are in the deficiency taxation chapter of the Jingwei. And both of those formulas have Sheng Di Huang in them. In fact, all the formulas that have Sheng Di, or I should say more specifically Gan Di Huang, so dried Romania, all those formulas are taken with alcohol. But in the, in the case of the pills, what you're doing is you're getting that shingdi and it's going into the small intestine. Now, you, obviously, you don't want to lose that medicinal by just it not being able to digest and then going out the stool, which is very typical of shingdi. So we act it, we put in a pill, it hits the small intestine, we mix it with alcohol, it gets through the walls of the small intestine, it gets straight into the bloodstream, which is very interesting. So then when you get into clinic, and I, I encourage your listeners to try this themselves, when you take it as a pill, Oh, sorry, when you take it as a powder or you take it as a decoction, the water-soluble won't cause as much problems, but it's just going you know, open into the stomach. And the water-soluble aspect, the, the, the things that aren't water-soluble in Shingdi, you're not going to absorb. So, but when you have it as a pill, you can take it and take it without the alcohol. And what happens? People get bloating and then diarrhea. And then they get with, without the alcohol. But if you take it with the alcohol... If you take it with the alcohol, no problems whatsoever. You're going to get less digestive distress and you're going to get more absorption. We found that you get no digestive distress. You just get the herbs. So what I'm trying to say in a nutshell is we're missing out on the wrong herb. We're using the wrong herb. And then we're missing out on the, we got the wrong dose. And then we're not administering it correctly. So we got all these problems. <laughs> and then what happens at the end of the day when the formula doesn't work? We blame ourselves. That's not true. We should be blaming all these other. We should be, you know, slowly, slowly breaking away all these layers until there's. Okay, I still got it wrong. All right, back to my diagnosis. Right. Well, I mean, in some ways, we should blame ourselves if we're not administering the herbs in the proper way. Then it. I mean, it's up to us to make sure that herbs are going in the proper way. To make sure that we're going to get the effects that we want. So what, what I what I think I hear you saying is we might be spot on with our diagnosis, but the way that we are preparing or administering herbs might be less than optimal. And so the results aren't good. The diagnosis is on, but we've actually failed in the way that we're getting herbs into people. Is that is that right? Is that am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. So give us a I mean, we're getting toward the end of this here. Give us a little primer on some ways that our average herbalist here in the West, that includes United States, Europe, Australia, how can we think about dosing or administering our herbs in a way that might get us to be a little bit more effective? I think just by observing those those foundations and trying to use those formulas in the way they were originally used. I think it's a really, really good place to start because they are the foundations of our medicine. And if we're not sort of taking that as, I hate to say gospel, but 
But if we're not using those foundations, it's very difficult to grow, get forward, especially as new practitioners. You know, one of, one of my favorite formulas, or not, if my, my favorite formula is gun sao tongue. And it's just gun sao. And it's just, <laughs> it's the, so it is the, it's the best formula. And we're just, we, we're underappreciating these things. So it's incredibly good for croup. So, at, at, but at the proper dose. So gun sao at two liang, which equals roughly 30 grams taken with 600 mils of water, boil down to 300, and then take 103 times a day. If, you, if a child takes that for three days in a row, as soon as they have that first sign of croup, the croup will go away. Because croup's a three-day cycle, it works incredibly well. Now, of course, you want to use the best quality gun cell you want. You probably want to buy Wildcraft, or you know, I know you guys got access to, to organic gun cell over there. So if you can get that, that's great. Or Wildcraft is even better. Yeah, it's a little harder to come by. Yeah, it is. It is getting harder and harder for sure. But that would be a great place to start. Just don't underestimate the power of this of the simplicity of our medicine. Li, uh, Li Jong one, it's just incredible formula. So yeah, that would that would be that would be a that's a really really good place to start. And then yeah, we can grow forward. And then we're we're appreciating the classics because at the end of the day, we're claiming this medicine is. We're claiming the empirical evidence of this this medicine. We're saying when we admit it, when we use Chinese medicine, we're using thousands of years of of, um, of history uh, in our in our diagnosis and in our application. But the actual fact is, we're not. We're using things that are modern. Granules are fifty years old, um, so we've never dispensed this in the classic in the classical times. Up till fifty before fifty years, no one was even using this stuff. So we can't really claim the history of Chinese medicine. We need to be able to say, well, if we want to claim the history of Chinese medicine, we need, and we want to be, we 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 have to use the the medicine as it was originally intended. So this is a provocative statement. I mean, it sounds like you're a very old school type of practitioner. You're very, and uh, you really go to the Shanghan Lun. You're looking not just at the original doses. You're looking at maybe even more importantly, because it sounds like you've been experimenting with different dosages over time. But what you're really focusing on here is the methods of preparation. Yeah, absolutely. And administration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Simon, anything else that, I mean, first of all, thank you. This has been a delightful conversation that goes from snowboarding to uh, cooking herbs. Anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wind this down? No, I just want to say to you, Michael, I, I appreciate the opportunity and, um, I, I love what you're doing, and it's yeah, it's a real honor to be uh, to be part of the podcast. And um, I, I hope people get get something out of it, and uh, I hope it's yeah, I hope it's beneficial. Well, I've got news for you: there wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't have interesting cats like you to talk to. Well, that is it for today's show. Wow, hey, what a journey Simon had, huh? You never know where this stuff just might take you. You know, it's easy to think, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to do a clinic. But, oh, my God, you could end up anywhere. And that's before or after your studies. Hey, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends because that's what friends do. Share good things with each other. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, 
share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.